WBME. Hello from elsewhere, I'm Casey. And I'm Valerie, and welcome to the podcast where we explore characters, themes, and symbolism in pop culture. This episode comes to you straight from a mythical menagerie. Because today we're discussing our favorite mythical creatures throughout time and pop culture. Casey, it's December now. Yep, it is. And you know what's even more magical than the month of December? The monolith that was found in the desert of Utah. Yes, that was pretty magical. (laughs) It's now in Romania, apparently. Right. (laughs) no what were you gonna say what's magical mythical creatures oh you were trying to be topical and i was derailing i was trying to lead us straight (laughs) into the podcast because we have so much to talk about valerie do you have an all-important question for me i do this question comes from our newest patron josh welcome josh hey josh and he asked this question besides hagrid or newt scamander which fictional character would be best suited to run a mythical creature rescue and rehab facility what's your answer i want to hear yours first my answer is ezra bridger ezra Ooh. bridger from rebels um he has a connection he has a force, force to connection all animals yeah to animals creatures. loath cats loath wolves pergil pergil my so favorite. Va- valerie's favorite creature in all of star wars would you say oh yeah easily um, yeah, so I, I think using his force abilities to, you know, keep them, I want to say in check, but it's not like that. It's like... Uh, like communicate with them and know yeah. to like make sure they're happy and exactly. content where they are. Yeah, that's, that's better put. Yeah. Yes. What's your answer? I like that one. I am going with Lisa Frank. Do you know who Lisa Frank is, Casey? <laughs> <laughs> is Lisa Frank a fictional character? Oh, darn it. She's not. <laughs> I just really wanted it to be Lisa Frank. For a second, you blew my mind. I was like, wait, was she like a creation of this company that's like, we're going to create this person, Lisa Frank, this persona that makes these uh, <laughs> that makes school folders with, uh, you know, pink dolphins and stuff and on it. dolphins and dragons on there. I just... <laughs> I think it's a good answer. I think just I'm, run with I'm, it. Just run with it. <laughs> pretend she's fictional. Just kidding. I. It's so funny because in my mind, like the fictional thing just went in one ear and out the other because I even looked her up and I was like oh she's still alive she lives in Tucson she's like 56 years old did you know there's a whole museum a Lisa Frank museum what where where is it in Tucson Arizona oh my goodness we could have gone I know when I went to the miniature museum in Tucson Arizona you could have gone to the Lisa Frank museum yeah I don't know if it's like open to the public but you know what I mean like it's more like a call museum but it's like a a storage or like it holds all of the past things but i don't know if it's like mm. you can just pay tickets to get in gotcha uh but i was just thinking with her love of mythical creatures and all kinds of creatures that she would just do really well in that profession but she's she probably is... afraid of animals how much you want to bet lisa <laughs> frank life? is scared of animals i think maybe of real ones but i think she'd like the fictional ones oh for yeah. sure if she can get like a unicorn she'd yeah. be one happy camper mm-hmm or like an ogre. Maybe she'd only pick the cute ones. <laughs> <laughs> Who decides what's cute and not? That's the big overarching mm. question of this episode. Yes. Is who decides which animals are cute and which are not? I would honestly say most mythical creatures are not mm. cute. I have someone who will disagree with you, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> so we each picked two mythical creatures 
actually, we each started out trying to pick a lot of mythical creatures. Yeah, it was going to be like an overview of many, many mythological creatures. And, and then, then we quickly realized with our research that we like to go deep. Yeah, I was getting kind of uh, bloated. And yes. so, <laughs> and so, uh, it's a great word. So, so we both have two mythical creatures. So if yours yes. didn't make this list, which is likely because we're only covering four here, yes. then we're sorry. But maybe this episode should just be called the four creatures that we're talking about. Maybe. Like can we can we justifiably call this episode <laughs> mythical creatures? Anymore? No, I think we call it mythical creatures. Colon. And then we just no, we just leave this one mythical creatures because then mm. later we could do mythical creatures part two or okay. three. Okay, I'm or down four. with that. Yeah. Okay. So at some point in the future, you know, within the next 50 years of Hello from Elsewhere, we might get to one of your favorite mythical creatures. Yeah. Because we couldn't possibly cover them all. So, in fact, we asked our patrons today in the Discord yes. what their favorite mythical creatures are. Right. My favorite was Austin, the Sprinkle Wizard, saying Air Bud. Yes. <laughs> That's my favorite <laughs> answer. <laughs> I really loved, I really loved Erica saying koala otters and she posted a like a you know cartoon picture of one i don't know what they're from is it koala otters or is it koala otters no it's definitely ao in the middle so koala otters i think they should blend but it's like ridiculous i saw the the gif yeah yeah i love otters so i'm there other mentions mc from that's what i'm talking about mentioned bill the pony that was a second favorite of mine yes bill the pony and we've also got hippogriffs and nifflers and fairies and nessie sphinxes manticores hippogriffs hobbits i like that mention oh our uh our patron robin said what was it called it's like a a fish cat born of a pig yes a cat plug yeah we are not sorry robin we are not covering the cat plug today maybe in the sequel we'll cover the cath plug it just goes to show that there are many many wonderful creatures mythical creatures out there and we just had to narrow it down yeah to our favorite to the ones we found most we probably picked the ones that are most commonly known or like the biggest yeah they're like the biggest cultural icons of mythical creatures um, which is fun because they have a lot of history attached to them. So Casey, what two creatures did you pick? Are we going to be doing the guessing thing that yes. you wanted to do? That's are we I... doing that here yes. now? Yes. Okay, so my two creatures are mermaids mm-hmm. and phoenixes. Okay. And my two creatures are dragons and unicorns. Okay. So we thought it'd be fun to try and guess the timeline mm-hmm. of oldest to newest. Yeah. Which of those four creatures uh, are, are oldest to newest? As in like, when was the first record of one mentioned in, right. in history? So what's your guess? I think it goes dragons. No, this is hard. Uh, I think it goes dragons, unicorns, mermaids, phoenix. Okay. See, I say it goes dragons, phoenix, mermaids, unicorns. Intriguing. Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure we'll have to kind of figure this out here. So I'm pretty sure dragon's the oldest because it's first mentioned in 1500 B.C., Really? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Phoenixes are older. Really? <laughs> yeah. And you thought they were the youngest. I did. Man, I was totally <laughs> off on that one. I mean, it, it's hard. We don't know for sure. but Right. This is like a record that somebody has when it was mentioned. And it depends on if you're counting what inspired the, the phoenix originally oh. or the phoenix itself. Because then it might be different. So I don't know how to how, how to judge this. Best but there was guess. an Egyptian bird that was that inspired the phoenix. 
that we'll okay. get into, but that was, you know, ancient Egyptian, 3300 BC or later, but or later could mean anything. So that's right? why this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to say Phoenix. Then dragons. What then year? Then dragons. It depends. I would say dragons are next. Next, uh, My unicorns are fifth century, so they might actually be the youngest. So I was right there. Because oh. merma- mermaids are 1000 BC, so... So I was right, except for I flipped dragons and dragons Phoenix. and Phoenix. Yep. Okay. So listeners, in case you needed to know in your life, <laughs> it goes: dra- uh, Phoenix are the oldest, mm-hmm. then the dragons, the then mermaids, the mermaids, then, unicorns. then the unicorns. Possibly again, the ages are very you fuzzy know. when it gets old. So. And these are old. We don't creatures. have an exact date that <laughs> that you know, John Q. Public invented the Phoenix. That's not really how it worked. So. Is that a reference to something? What's John Q. Public? <laughs> You've never heard that I've before? I've never heard that before. <laughs> you uncultured swan. <laughs> what is it? John Q. Public's just like a, like, you know, Joe Schmo or just That's like a guess, generic name for nobody. Yeah. Nobody or everybody? Because if it's like, is it like the public? The real question to know? is the phrase John Q. Public older or younger than Phoenix's? <laughs> I'm going to go with younger. <laughs> well, then, Casey. That works out perfectly. Let's go in age order. Oh, so I have to start with Phoenix. So start with Phoenix. This messes up my entire oh. structure and my outline. And no, it's fine. Can you? I do just it? have to scroll down my notes a little bit. Just <laughs> give me a give me a moment. These notes are long. Oh, they are extensive. Oh yeah. I I always think this like uh what I'm not gonna have much to say about mermaids and phoenixes and you know twelve you pages later. You kind of caught me on this episode. You're like. What are we even going to talk about with mythical creatures? And I was like, I really want to do it. I say that about the majority of episodes, though. I don't know what I'm going to talk I about. That I suggest. <laughs> You're fine if you've suggested it. Well, that's just because it's that gives in my, the idea already. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> I need to trust you and myself more. Okay, so the phoenix is, of course, a large bird. It's got the fiery plumage, and it lives anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years then burns itself, and then rises again from the ashes. You know, very symbolic of immortality I and death. I never would have guessed 500 to 1,000 years. Yeah, they live very long lives. In my in mind. Mytholo- in mythology, they do, anyways. Right. I would have guessed, I mean, I'm thinking, like, Fox the Phoenix is the one that comes to mind from right. Harry Potter. And so in my mind, it's like, well, Dumbledore can't have had him that long. Like, he's probably only, like, right. 50 I don't, years old. I don't think in the wizarding world they follow that same timeline as the myth, because... Mm. What would be the chances of, like, Harry happening to show up on Burning Day? You know, like, the chances are very slim if they live to a thousand years old. If they live to a thousand. (laughs) So I don't don't think it's the same timeline. But um, I'll talk about Fox in a little bit. But first, you know, some some history. Um, As I mentioned, there's an ancient Egyptian bird that inspired what we think of as the phoenix. But there's this bird called a Bennu um, in ancient Egypt that was um, more heron-like. So it's not really what we think of when we think of a phoenix, but it's it's like a heron. And it could be any color, like sometimes they're white or gray or blue or purple, um, not necessarily red and yellow like we think of. But it had the same kind of the same attributes we think of with the phoenix. Um, even the word Bennu means like to rise or shine brilliantly. So there's the, there's the, the myth and legends of the Bennu that was thought by them to be the soul of Osiris. Um, and he was born from a burning holy tree and would later in life build a nest of cinnamon twigs and burn itself within the nest, only to rise again from the ashes. So he would smell good yeah. while he was burning. Right. Just roast some cinnamon sticks. <laughs> I, I know. It's like, yeah. 
I, I was thinking of some delicious turkey or something. <laughs> Maybe it's because Thanksgiving just came and went. But there was a large heron that's now extinct that they think probably inspired the ancient Egyptians for the Bennu. But it became like symbolic of the ebb and flow of the Nile, um, you know, and life after death and of time itself. And of course, like immor- immortality and stuff. And that's what we'll see with a lot of these um, different cultural takes on the phoenix is a lot of that symbol same symbolism of life and death and cycles and the circular nature of life kind of a thing um but then there comes the greeks and they had this idea of the phoenix which was inspired by that Bennu. um the word phoenix came from the phoenician the phoenicians and it meant crimson or purple um so then it starts to look more like what we think of as the phoenix where there's red sometimes it was purple um, but more eagle-like less like a heron and uh, it was known for its song and was believed to reside by a well, and Apollo would ride his chariot by and then stop to listen to the phoenix's song. Wait, if he stopped to listen to the song, yeah, is that like midday or something? Like the sun just paused for a little bit? Oh, I didn't think about that. I guess so. <laughs> Maybe time works different for him, though. I don't know. Could be. Is it Apollo that's yeah, riding like, the day and night? Because like the chariot, he pulls the sun, yeah. Are you sure? I don't know. No. I don't remember. I believe that's, so. I mean, we should have stated outright that Valerie and I are coming at this from, um, we're interested parties. We are not mythological scholars in any way. So oh, no. just keep that in mind. <laughs> We've done a lot of research, but boy, I've learned from my little bit of research that you could study like dragons your entire life and yeah. not cover all of it. Right. We could do <laughs> entire episodes, multiple episodes on each of these. So yes. Um, so then there's other cultures that had similar phoenix-like birds. So there's China, there's the Feng Huang, which um, was also very similar to other Asian variations like in Japan and Vietnam. Um, today, the Feng Huang is described as like this amalgamation of different birds. But um, previously, anciently, uh, it, was, it had um, the face of a swallow, a beak like a rooster, the backside of a stag, a fish tail the shell of a tortoise, and the neck of a snake. So quite the... I can't even picture that. <laughs> yeah, quite the animal there. I feel like they're just trying to outdo the Greeks with their monstrous amalgamations. Right, except I'm sure that these came first. That's true. That's true. Most I have a bad chi- sense of time. Most of Chinese culture yeah. did. <laughs> you know, so that kind of shifted into something that was just more bird-like, less of a hodgepodge. And it was symbolic of yin and yang. And is often, like the a more modern phoenix is often shown in like wedding symbolism next to a dragon because the the phoenix was seen as feminine with dragons representing the masculine and so sometimes when there's weddings in china they'll have the they'll have the phoenix and dragon symbolism as sort of representation of the bride and groom very cool yeah um and their version the chinese version of the phoenix would often show up at times of peace which was different than um than some of the other other cultures in Hindu, um, there was you know Vishnu, the Hindu god, and he was said to use um, their version of the phoenix, the Garuda, as his chariot. So he would ride a phoenix, which is pretty bad, eh? Um, very cool, very cool. There's the Russian firebird. There's the Arabian Anka. And I thought this was interesting. In Judaism, it is believed that Eve um, tempted the animals in the Garden of Eden with fruit, and only one bird resisted and was therefore granted immortality because it didn't eat the fruit. And that was the phoenix. Very. Yeah. I like that. Um, and then, in, you know, in Christianity, Phoenix is often seen um, in, you know, images and symbolic of Christ's death and resurrection. Even some of the Christian images, you'll see the, the Phoenix has its wings spread and its tail 
down and so it's like shaped in a cross yeah it makes sense that they would use that as allegorical because of the the death and rebirth for sure and so i think so many cultures have some sort of relationship with death and rebirth in some way or resurrection and so yeah it makes sense that a phoenix bird would be um, almost universal with slight variations but when i talk about the mermaid later like there's way more differences in how they portrayed mermaids in different cultures whereas the phoenix is a little more i guess just a little less varied um, other than maybe the the chinese one so then on to the phoenix in pop culture as we mentioned there's fox that's kind of the first one that we we tend to think of i don't know if most people tend to think of fox the phoenix but I mean, from harry potter i think he's probably the biggest yeah, in say, our day and age right <laughs> um you know in, in the wizarding world the phoenix has other attributes like you know well because he does have that death and rebirth aspect to him but he also you know has healing tears which i couldn't find any any other phoenixes that had that mm-hmm. um so i don't know if that was an invention or if maybe i'm i just didn't find it but just a harry potter it could just attribute. be because it's a regenerative bird that it made makes sense that its fluids would be healing <laughs> <laughs> all of its fluids <laughs> that's up to you that's up for debate <laughs> if it spits on you does that count too um and then carrying large weights that was kind of seen in some other cultures, but not maybe not quite so explicitly. And then also, of course, Fox has his song, which is a big part of him as a phoenix. And that was that was a, 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 mythical, a mythical trait that he had. I like the idea of, um, I was thinking about Fox as symbolic of Dumbledore and Harry and Voldemort, because they all have this connection to Fox, you know, um, w- you know, with his youthful obsession with becoming master of death and... Um, thinking about the sorcerer's stone granting immortality like it makes sense that dumbledore would have a pet phoenix right that he would be drawn to him yeah and then his patronus was a phoenix as well um also the the harry potter wiki mentioned how often dumbledore uses fire spells which i'd never really thought about but he's often using fire as as spells even one of his last spells and definitely the final big spell he does was the big firestorm to keep the inferior around before he before he dies um, just a little bit later. So yeah, very interesting that Dumbledore has this connection to fire and and Fox as well. And then you have Harry who himself survives. He survives two killing curses. He becomes master of death and his wand contains, you know, Fox's feathers. So there's, there's Harry there as well that has that connection to immortality in some way. And then Voldemort who's obsessed with immortality and he's afraid of death. And his wand also has one of Fox's feathers. So exciting. I like that. They're all very intertwined yeah. with Phoenix. Exactly. And then also the Order of the Phoenix as a name makes sense because the order had to come back. You know, it was dormant and then it was resurrected, so to speak. So the name is fitting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. This is really interesting. So, you know, Fox is named after Guy Fox, right? You know, in England, they have Guy Fox night where they burn puppets of, of Guy <laughs> Fox. Yeah. And but there's this. I wonder if Rowling knew about this. I have no idea. But there's this children's fantasy story from 1904 called the phoenix and the carpet by edith nesbitt um and there's it's like a children's um you know it's like a longer book like peter pan kind of a thing as far as i can tell but the children in the stories um they're preparing for guy fox night and they buy some fireworks and they can't wait to light them they get so excited and they end up burning their carpet and their parents buy them a new brand new carpet and as they're unrolling the new carpet there's a phoenix egg in the carpet and it ends up that the carpet is a flying carpet and the kids go on this adventure on the flying carpet with like the phoenix as their guide through these adventures. Sounds amazing. Yeah. And I want to read Right? It. I'd never heard of this. <laughs> I had no idea, but it sounds really fun. Who knows? Maybe it's terrible and that's why no one knows about it. I don't know. What was but, it named again? Um, it's called The Phoenix and the Carpet by Edith Nesbitt. 
1904. My but, name is Mrs. Nesbitt. <laughs> exactly. I just thought it was fitting that they're preparing for Guy Fox night and the story's about a phoenix. So I love it. That's why I wondered if it was inspirational in some way to Harry Potter. Um, and then, of course, there's some others. I won't go into them too much, but like uh, in X-Men, you have the Dark Phoenix and the Phoenix Force. Ender's Game, you have Phoenix's army, the Phoenix Army. But I wanted to talk about Phoenix symbolism in Star Wars really quick, which is funny. As I was researching, I wasn't thinking about Star Wars, which is kind of a big surprise to everyone. But I really <laughs> legitimately was not thinking about Star Wars. And then Valerie reminded me of the, um, of the Phoenix symbol in Rebels. I was like, oh, why didn't I think about it? Yeah. Well, I you would, said I wouldn't have thought about it except that we are currently rewatching Rebels. But even then, I wasn't thinking about it. I should have been, but um, I don't know what, what was. I don't know what was wrong. But in the Star Wars galaxy, there's a legendary bird called a Starbird, and in her journal, Sabine Wren from Rebels, uh, she says, "According to some, the Starbird can never die. Whenever it seems to be gone, it's actually actually renewing itself in the heart of a Nova, which is like my favorite thing ever." Yeah. So that's way better than just bringing the ashes. Yeah. So there's a space phoenix in the Star Wars Renewing galaxy. Renewing itself yeah. in the heart of a Nova. Um, if you've seen Rebels. That's what I'm going to do when you think I'm dying, Casey. I'm just over-renewing myself <laughs> in, in the heart, the heart of, of a Nova. That's valid. That's way better than diminishing into the West. Right. I want to renew myself in the, in the heart, heart of, of a Nova. Nova. Can I do that too? Yeah. Yeah. If you've seen Rebels, you know Sabine Wren has this phoenix starbird symbol that's, you know, you want to say it's reminiscent of the rebel symbol, but technically it takes place before. Um, the rebel symbol took its inspiration from the Wren starbird symbol and then added, you know, it made it a little more regal looking, but yeah, it's inspired by Sabine Wren's um, drawing that she would put up to to let people know that, I don't know, it's just like a symbol the of all kinds of things. The rebellion's here. here or they're happening. Or um, she even uses it to give directions in the sewers to get yes. to a secret spot, that kind of a thing. And so, yeah, that symbol's used for the rebels. And then even later with the New Republic, that symbol's used. So it has a lot of a lot of purchase although it, the shaping of it is really reminiscent of the jedi symbol even before her um i don't know if they ever explicitly state it but it's clear True. she's probably inspired by that sort of a symbolic representation of may the force be with you and also it just is fitting that um they're trying to bring back good to the galaxy after it's been gone you know they're trying to renew that resurrect it the the resistance the rebellion that's your plug if you haven't seen rebels go watch it right um yeah, so yeah, I just think symbolically the, the phoenix or starbird is fitting for the rebels. You know, as evil continue, continually rises and renews itself, so does the rebellion to defeat it. And this happens throughout multiple eras of, of Star Wars. So there's always this grand evil, you know, having to be defeated by this these underdog resistance or rebels. And so the, the symbol of that is very fitting. And then I was thinking about The Last Jedi, because I do always think about The Last Jedi, and how the, the tree on Octo that the Jedi texts are in is it's, it's got the three pronged shape, which, you know, oh, leads yeah. you to believe that that's where the Jedi get the, the shaping of their original symbol, because you see the symbol on the old Jedi texts that uh, Luke and Ray are chatting about inside the tree. You see that shaping of the symbol. And so that the tree has those three pronged, but then fitting what happens to that tree, it gets burned. Right. <laughs> um, but, not before Ray takes the text out the text and he starts the Jedi Order like a phoenix. Survive. Yeah. yeah. I love that. It's fantastic. Last last Phoenix mention in pop culture I wanted to mention was in Fahrenheit four fifty one, which is one of my favorite books. The the firemen who, you know, they don't put out fires, they burn books. On their um their uniforms they have a Phoenix symbol. 
And I'd forgotten that. Yeah. And in that book, civilization is on the brink of destroying itself and then hopefully rising from the ashes, as mentioned by um, one of the characters, Granger, toward the end. Um, he's one of those scholars who's memorized a book. And he's talking about how he hopes that civilization rises from those ashes. You know, after all the war and chaos, the books that have been burned can be rewritten and society can be, you know, can start anew is sort of his hope. But with, you know, with each rebirth, he's talking about how he hopes that each one, you know, society's a little bit better and they've learned a little bit more since the last burning. Do you think you could memorize a whole book, Casey? And if so, which book would like you choose to book. memorize? <laughs> I know. I'm like, maybe a picture book <laughs> if I worked at it for a really long time. I mean, I think I expect it would become like, you know, the old stories told verbally, orally yes, it would be in olden times. I don't know if it's... There's no way you can get it word for Literally, word. yeah, memorized, but... I don't know. That's a good question. Probably Fahrenheit 451. I think it would be fitting and meta if that was the one that I memorized. <laughs> you had to memorize. Yeah. All right. I'm done with Phoenix. Has any any thoughts with that word dump I just provided? They are neat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, Appreciate that. There's a lot of great information there, but I don't have lot. anything to add. Okay. <laughs> so Phoenix. So next was dragons, right? Yes. I'm I'm excited to hear about dragons. I'm okay. just going to sit back and listen. All right. It's like story time. Yeah. <laughs> so the oldest mention of dragons is, as I mentioned, is in 1500 BC. And it's in an ancient Indian source um, called the, the Rig Veda, which is apparently one of the oldest texts in the world. And uh, they speak of a great dragon, the, the Vertra, who, and I'm probably going to slaughter a lot of names. Just going to apologize in advance. Um, who had to be killed by the god Indra to release the waters of heaven onto earth. So it's kind of a, a creation story that rep that has a dragon in it. And like you were saying with the phoenix, the dragons are absolutely ubiquitous. They are everywhere. Like every culture has a dragon of some kind. One article that I read explains it this way. It says, even with the endless variations of language and culture that people have created, not to mention every possible type of landscape and climate, They've called home. Time and again, our ancestors have conjured up the myth of the dragon. What's that from? It's in the it's in the reference links. I don't remember which article. Should have written that down right here in my notes, but I did reference it at the bottom. I know I'm getting sloppy. <laughs> but it it's just really interesting to see that, like they said, like the myth of the dragon is almost. Um, it makes me think of like James Campbell's, like you know, he talks about myths and legends and and the idea of the unconscious collective it's like they all just kind of seem to spontaneously come up with a dragon idea when it, you know because in different cultures they were in different way in they were represented differently but they were all also kind of similar which is very fun for example in a babylonian version there's a, a serpentine deity monster called tiamat who emerged from the sea to threaten all of creation with a return to primordial chaos and the young heroic god marduk takes up the challenge, slaying Tiamat and rescuing the cosmos. So we've got that. And then in Greek mythology, there's several battles with a serpent monsters. Like, so Zeus secures his rule over the heavens and earth by using his thunderbolts to kill Typhon, which is the fire-breathing dragon creature. So it kind of looks like a snake with legs. So this is interesting because there's so many different types of dragons. And sometimes we give them different names. Uh, how do you say Werverns? How do you say that one? Wyverns and worms and drakes. <laughs> and drakes and, and, yeah, yeah, there's lots. And of there's like sea serpents and and uh, the the Naga. I'm not sure if that's how you say that one either. 
that's really more popular in like Indian and Asian culture. But yeah, they're all considered different types of dragons. Um, so like I was saying, so in Eastern and Asian depictions, the dragons tend to have a serpent-like body with four legs and they're wingless, but they can fly. So they don't need the wings to fly, which is interesting. And then later in like Western cultures, in like the Middle Ages, we've got the ones that come to mind for me. You know, the big winged dragons, fierce, like almost like a crocodile mouth snout with big teeth. And, and they're scaly, so they're all protected that way. And then they've got, you know, the claws. Um, but many indigenous tribes in North, Central, and South America have records and like old drawings or stories of gods who are dragons of some kind. Like, they're often depicted as being winged and horned serpents. So it's interesting to note that in China, they are a dragon as a symbol of good luck and thought to have power over rain. In fact, the four main rivers in China are named after, uh, like, the uh, named after four dragons. And the Chinese have nine different types of dragons that are part of their culture. Or, like, at least nine major dragons or, like, other smaller branches off of those, too. And... Most Eastern cultures depict dragons as benevolent. Um, for example, one dragon comes out of a river and gives uh, men the gift of writing. Like, here, now you know how to write things, or, you know, which is very cool. Meanwhile, uh, Western tradition portrays them as having, like, above-average intelligence. They're smart, but they're also, like, really greedy, and they're hoarding treasures, and they live in caves, and they eat any animals or humans that strike their fancy. So it's interesting to note that Western dragons are far more vicious and brutal, and the Eastern dragons are far more benevolent. And in Christianity, dragons are often used to represent the devil, which makes sense. Like we, especially when you picture like the, the fire breathing mouth is like a symbolism of like hell and the fires there. But I didn't know this, Casey, for being a Christian myself, did you know that in the Bible, in the book of Job, chapter 41, there's a description of a creature called Leviathan, and it the description sounds like a dragon. Like, like it says, it has terrible teeth, scales that are his pride, that can't be cut asunder, and out of his mouth go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Uh, that sounds like the description of a dragon <laughs> right there in the Bible. <laughs> so then most Christians of medieval myth uh, medieval theology believed in the literal existence of dragons. And they had proof because, you know, occasionally they'd unearth giant bones in the ground, Casey. So naturally those were dragons. <laughs> now today we would call them dinosaurs, not dragons. But the Christian church also created legends of, like, righteous and godly saints battling and vanquishing Satan in the form of a dragon. The most celebrated of those was St. George the Dragon Slayer, who, in legends, he comes upon a town threatened by a terrible dragon. He rescues a fair maiden, protects himself with the sign of the cross, and slays the beast. The town citizens, impressed by St. George's feat of faith and bravery, immediately convert to Christianity. Just sounds like a solid Christian story there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I saved you with the sign of the cross. So near, like naturally you all need to be Christians now. That's just how it works. <laughs> a couple of my favorite dragon myths that I came across, Casey, and there are many. But in Polish folklore, there's the story of Wawel Hill and the Wawel dragon 
tale takes place in Krakow uh, during the reign of King Krakus, uh, who was like the king's or like the city's founder. So, anyways, this dragon that lived in Huawei Hill. Each day, the evil dragon would kill people and and take over crop or take over cattle and things. So, instead, they would bring sacrifices to the hillside so that he would be satisfied and then not attack everything. And uh, so, in and there's a few different versions of this, but in one version, lots of warriors failed to try and defeat the dragon, but a cobbler's apprentice named Scuba accepts accepted the challenge, and he decided to stuff a cattle skin with sulfur and set it in front of, you know, set it outside the dragon's cave. And the dragon ate it and became so thirsty, because it, like, lodges in his throat and it's sulfur, he became so thirsty thirsty that he turned to the Vistola River and drank until he burst. Then the cobbler gets to marry the king's daughter as promised. It's my favorite way to defeat uh, a villainous monster. Right. A sulfur cow and then you (laughs) explode from drinking so much water. One of my favorite things about some of these myths is is when they take place in very specific locations. Like Krakow, Krakow, I'm not sure how you say it, is a city that's still there and you'll find like dragon statues to depict the dragon of Wawa Hill. have cow statues. <laughs> right? You should be celebrating that sulfur cow. That cow is the hero of the story. And the cobbler's apprentice. He's He didn't even, not even a full cobbler. <laughs> Just the apprentice. <laughs> How do you depict that in a statue? My One of my other favorites is the dragon of Mortiford. Ooh, that's fun to say. Right? M- Mortiford. Plus it's like it's, almost like mortified. Right? But it also makes me think of like Mordor. Yeah. More to Ford. So in this story, there's a little girl named Maud who lived just outside Herefordshire. Herefordshire? I can't say any British names either. I'm just going to let you stumble <laughs> over this. don't know any of them. <laughs> and so in England, and she finds a small green dragon and takes it home. And she's like begging her parents to let her keep it as a pet. And they're like, um, no, that's going to be trouble. So like all unfeeling parents, they told her to take it far away into the woods and leave it alone. And so naturally, Maud, like all sneaky children, ignored her parents' warnings of danger and stashed the dragon in the woods and cared for it and fed it milk and snuggled it and and her love made it grow oh so big, Casey. So it's basically Aragon. And Clifford and a bunch of other But Aragon's <laughs> an actual pets. dragon, though. Sure. E.T. But my reference to her love made it grow oh so big is out of Clifford's oh, theme sorry. song. I'm not a... <laughs> I'm not a Clifford stan like you are. You don't you don't listen to the children play Clifford. Um, but yeah, so soon it's so big that, you know, the milk she's feeding, it's not enough. And so it started eating cattle and sheep from local fields. And then when the farmers tried defending their flocks, the dragon starts eating them. And it grows to really enjoy the taste of man flesh. <laughs> um, but never Maud. Maud could still tame her dragon by stroking its claws and snuggling it. Looks like the sun's getting real low. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, but the townspeople were fed up with this dragon and asked the noblemen of the nearby Mortiford, 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 to help. And one man from the Garstone family came riding out in full armor and searched out the green dragon, who's like camouflaged in the forest, where the dragon let out a blast of fire, which Garstone barely deflected. And aiming his lance for the dragon's throat, he throws it so forcefully, like pierces all the way through the dragon's neck. And then poor Maud comes flying out of the woods in rage and sorrow at the death flying? of her dragon. Flying? Did she grow wings? No. Uh, uh, figurative. She comes running, 
flying out of the woods. Are you quoting something or did you write that? I rewrote this story in my own words. Okay. Anyways, my favorite part is that a painting of Maud's dragon still hangs on the local church's walls. It's <laughs> amazing. Still there in their mythology. But not Maud, not a picture of Maud. No, there was no picture of Maud. Actually, the dra- the picture on the wall is a reproduction of the original dragon picture. Because, like I said, dragons, sign of Satan. So one priest was eventually like, no, no, we gotta get rid of this thing. Did he set it on fire? I don't know how they got rid of it. Didn't say. Probably. <laughs> Probably burned it. But anyways, so there, was, so there was a reproduction of the dragon's picture made, and that hangs on the church walls. Casey, what's your favorite dragon of pop culture? Sean Connery. I'm missing something. <laughs> you know, Dragonheart. With oh, a, yes. With he a does mulleted, the voice. With a mulleted uh, um, Dennis Quaid befriending Sean Connery the dragon. Yeah, that came up in my research. And I was like, I don't know what this movie is. You've never seen Dragonheart? I've never seen Dragonheart. Oh, man. It's like at the... <laughs> It's like at the, um, you know, the moment where studios are starting to really dive into the CGI, but they really shouldn't yet. <laughs> and so the dragon does not look great. But I remember loving it as a, as a kid. I haven't seen it for a long time, so I'm sure the dragon looks terrible. But, but I mean, come on. It's Dennis Quaid in a fantasy movie with a mullet. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Lupin, the actor that plays Lupin, is the bad guy. And he's gross and mean. <laughs> and I mean, Sean Connery is the dragon. And it's like, if Sean Did Conner- he use motion capture? No, he's not <laughs> Benedict Cumber Dragon. Um, the, no, the, the dragon's heart, because that's where the movie title comes from, Dragon Heart, is mm-hmm. connected to the heart of the bad guy. So if one of them dies, then the other dies. So oh, dear. you can guess what, you know, how it ends, but I'm not going to. Not going to spoil it because you should go watch Dragonheart. <laughs> I need to find it somewhere. There's apparently. also Dragon Slayer from the 80s, which is a really good movie and probably still holds up, actually, because there's like using motion, uh, not motion capture, um, more stop motion stuff. I mean, I don't know that it holds up great, but like holds up in the sense that it's a fun 80s movie about dragons. See, um, more things to add to my list. I'm trying to think what dragons are my favorite, though. Well, while you're thinking, my favorite dragon. So Fablehaven, which is a series written by uh, Brandon Mole, and I love. If you haven't read Fablehaven and you love mythical creatures, like every mythical creature is in Fablehaven. But in Fablehaven, they have the Cathpalug. Don't remember that one. Robin's Cathpalug. No. (laughs) So maybe not every mythical creature, but a lot of them. But in Fablehaven, there's a whole dragon sanctuary with a king dragon named Celebrant. He's the worst. But his son. Raxtus is like my favorite dragon because while Raxtus was still an egg, a cockatrice got into the nest and ate three of his siblings. But before the cockatrice could, could eat Raxtus, uh, some fairies like fly in and they like save him from the cockatrice. And then because they intervened, they gave him like some of their magic. Whoa. So he's a really unique looking dragon. Um, he's small in appearance. Like, he's small compared to all the other dragons, so his dad considers like him a small, weakling. Like how small? Like fingernail? No, like, if a dragon's the size of a house, then he's probably, like, the size of a bus. I don't know. But he's probably the size of a cow filled with sulfur. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so his dad is always, like, picking on him because, you know, he's tiny. He's a runt. But he has, because of the fairies, he has a silvery white scales that, like, look kind of like a rainbow kind of appearance. As he like goes through sunlight on his scales and his head is like as bright as like polished 
chrome silver like it's very cool appearance and because he's small he's really fast also he can turn invisible which is also cool but best of all is that he has like self-esteem issues <laughs> and he's mm. an introverted dragon instead of being a very forceful dragon so i find him more relatable than most dragons so Raxdus is my favorite but a lot of other honorable mentions elliot of pete's dragon we got smog from the hobbit mushu from mulan i know there's dragons in game of thrones but i've never seen game of thrones what about uh, Toothless? That's next on my list. Toothless from How to Train a Dragon. Toothless is great. I love How to Train Your Dragon movies. Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that might be my favorite dragon, actually. Pretty great. Maleficent when she turns, yeah. Yeah, when she becomes a dragon. What about Mad Madam Mim when she turns into a dragon? Ooh, I didn't have that one on my list, but I love her <laughs> as a dragon, sick. too. Yes. <laughs> uh, you've got Norberta and the other dragons from Harry Potter. Mm. Remember, she's Norbert. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then later... Charlie tells him it was a female. You got Safira from Aragon. That was next on my list. Man, Sorry. you're just going Sorry. right. I mean, I don't mind you chiming in. It's just funny that you're actually hitting the I'm exact on your list next somehow. one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have your list in front of me. You know, for the There's record. There's Haku from Spirited Away. There's Casey. Do you remember Quest for Camelot? I never saw it. <gasps> okay. There's a dragon movie you need to see. All right. We're going to do a double feature. <laughs> dragon Heart. No, triple feature. Dragon Slayer. Dragon Heart. And Quest, Quest for, for Camelot. Camelot. Quest for Camelot came out in 1998. It's a fantastic movie, Casey. Is that animated? It is animated, Warner Brothers. Um, but so in Quest for Camelot, there's a two-headed dragon, and the dragons are named Devon and Cornwall. And uh, anyways, they hate that they're stuck with each other, naturally. Mm -hmm. And they're just a funny comedic relief kind of dragon. But that story's really good. You've never seen it? No. Oh, man. The main character is like a blind hermit who can fight really well with a staff, but he's like oh, younger and good looking. I'm a big fan of those kinds of characters. Yeah. And then there's this, uh, and like they're trying to warn King Arthur. Uh, the sword of Excalibur was stolen. This is like, it's a good story. We didn't, I don't know if it counts as a dragon because it can't fly. It's more of a dinosaur-like creature, but in Willow, when he uses the spell on the troll and the troll's skin peels away and there's that fleshy orb that gets Not kicked into the lake and then the lake bubbles and then the two-headed dragon-like creature pops out of the lake and it's the grossest-looking thing you've ever seen. It is the grossest-looking thing ever. I'd count that as a dragon. It's probably some kind of dragon. I mean, it's in a fantasy movie. Right. Uh, last one on my list here, Falcor. The Luck Dragon. Oh, okay. From Never Ending Story. Falcor is up there for me, too. I forgot about Falcor. There's so many dragons that it's hard to there remember. There are so many dragons. The list on Wikipedia was enormous, and I was like, okay, I recognize like 15 of these names. <laughs> like I said, you could study dragons both in mythology and in pop culture for the rest of your days. Did you mention Smaug? Yes. Okay. He guards treasure. There's also apparently another dragon in like the... Uh, you know, Silmarillion. Yeah, I think there's a few I'm sure there's important some. dragons in earlier ages of Middle-earth, yeah. But yeah, Smog's the one everybody knows. Yep. All right, Casey, that's it for dragons. You ready to talk about mermaids? I'm so ready to talk about I mermaids. I know you have a lot about mermaids. I have a lot more. Uh, yeah, I do have a lot about mermaids. I find <laughs> mermaids really interesting. I'd say phoenixes are my favorite mythological creature, but I did have a lot of fun researching mermaids because I find them interesting. There's mermen and there's merpeople, but most of the interesting legends are specifically with mermaids. So that's why I'm focusing on mermaids themselves. Um, so of course, mermaids are, you know, fish from the waist down, a woman from the waist up, right? 
but then all their other attributes vary depending on um, the culture and time period that you look at. The the first stories of mermaids appear around 1000 BC, like I mentioned before. But even before that, there was an ancient Babylonian god who was a uh, you know a man that was the top half was him, you know, the man, and then the bottom half was a fish. So there was a precedent um, prior to that. But in terms of mermaids specifically, it was around that time. There was a an Assyrian goddess named Atargetus. And uh, in some of her stories, it was said that she loved a human shepherd, but then she accidentally killed him. I don't know with her goddess powers or what whatnot. Don't Somehow know she your killed own him. Strength. Yeah, and uh, but she was so distraught that she threw herself into a lake, and then um, but she wasn't allowed to like die, I guess, and so she was transformed into a half fish, half woman. <laughs> so that was like the, one of the first. Is that, instances. is that a better or worse fate? I don't know. Yeah, that's the question. That's the all-important question. And then a little bit later, you know, you had the Greeks, and they had their sirens of Greek mythology, um, which were originally depicted as birds. Um, but over the years, they kind of um, melded together with the legends of mermaids and and became half fish. So that their yeah their legend sort of shifted over the years. In you know Homer's Odyssey, he asks to be strapped to the front of the ship. So that he isn't like tempted by the mermaids, by the sirens, uh, and then around around like 500 BC. Are you texting? <laughs> no, I'm looking up a movie with a mermaid in it that I don't think you've ever seen that I need to bring up later okay. because it's so. Good. Um, around 500 BC, there some people thought that maybe that we um, humans were like came from some sort of aquatic species because how else are babies surviving in the womb? So that was yeah. that was part of the legend okay. as well, 500 BC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, much later, so the AD 70s. And you start out like tadpoles, so they're not right? far off. <laughs> right, AD 70s, um, there was Pliny the Elder, which he wrote his like natural history of catalog- cataloging animals and creatures, and but he always like wrote it with such authority. Did they that, call it a bestiary? What did they? I believe so. Okay. Because that came up in my studies too. And yeah. I was like, I want to read old medieval bestiaries. Yeah, and they, but they would do it with such like authority that people just assumed everything in there was true. Yes. And but Pliny the Elder would just like hear from a friend of a friend that you know these scaly creatures are washing up on the beach all the time, and so mermaids must be a real thing, right? <laughs> this is funny. This will come back into play with unicorns. That same kind of yeah evolving into the written word so then even later 1493 enslaver christopher columbus is you know sailing and he sees um what he thinks he said he thinks he sees mermaids but he thought they were a lot uglier than the paintings depicted mermaids this is sounding um, just like unicorns too. and <laughs> based on like where he was sailing it was likely that he saw manatees or dugongs or similar creatures Manatees aren't exactly the most beautiful creatures. You take that back. <laughs> Manatees are my favorite animal. And you can take that back. I think they're wonderful, but I wouldn't but say they're beautiful. Christopher Columbus is my least favorite animal, though. Very valid. Many sightings, like many sightings from sailors at that period, were probably manatees. You know, because a lot of <clears throat> a lot of sailors would claim to see mermaids, um, and like a little bit later, John Smith. You know, they've of, got cabin fever. Yes. It's driving them insane. Exactly. John Smith of Pocahontas fame. Um, he also claimed to have seen mermaids, but he thought they were prettier than Columbus thought. So. <laughs> he, beauty, was, he was more dehydrated. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, pirates thought that mermaids were bad luck 
and that they were there to seduce them for their treasure. That makes sense. A lot of the stories about sirens are that they would, you know, if you listen to the song, then you'll be drowned in the sea. Oh, we're going to get to some drownings in just a moment. I was going to say good, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's good. So in, I thought this was interesting because maps, and you and I love maps. Yes. In 16th century, there was a Scandinavian cartographer, Olas Magnus, and he would note places on his maps where mermaids and other sea monsters had been sighted and, you know, to warn sailors to avoid yeah. these areas on steer the map. Steer clear. Yeah. Which is funny because every time you see like a depiction. Where the phrase steer clear comes from, Casey? I don't know. Probably just, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking like, like, you know, like you steer the ships and you'd have to steer them around rocks or no, other No, I think that things. one comes from John Q. Public. I think he said that one. The, but it's interesting because you think about any time they show a depiction of like a pirate map. They always have like a little like artistic drawing of like a sea serpent or yes. like a mermaid or something, but it's like fun. This was legitimate. He legitimately would put it where there had been sightings to avoid those spots. So you can go there at your own risk. Right. Um, he would also say that if you accidentally caught a mermaid while fishing, you had to release it right away or you'd face the wrath of the sea. I feel like I've heard other stories where if you catch the mermaid, you get a wish. And that's the thing with like these cultures, it was either like they were very benevolent or very malevolent. Yes. Um, yeah. So just like so the dragon. I can get into the cultures. So in Britain, mermaids were said to have been able to foretell storms, and they were seen as bad omens. So if you saw mm. a mermaid, then there was going to be a bad, a bad storm. Also in Britain, mermaids could swim upstream to freshwater. Um, in one legend, there's a mermaid that fell in love with a human for his singing voice, and the two of them would meet. You know, like this was a mermaid that would like swim up river. And she would sing, and then she fell in love with this other guy that sang. And so you mean Ariel? So from you, the could, Little Mermaid. you could hear him. Yeah, we'll get to the Little Mermaid, <laughs> but you could hear him sing them sing songs together. I don't know. Does Eric sing in Little no, Mermaid? No, but Ariel sings, and she falls in love with a human. Yeah, but this one specifically, she fell in love with his singing voice before. Mm. But then they sing together like duets in the freshwater. That's nice. That Much is... nicer than the Russian ones. We'll get to in a second. <laughs> well, also in Britain. They would often swim upstream to lure people to their death. So that one legend of the one that fell in love, that was like a, an exception. Generally, they were not great because they were seen as bad omens and they would drown people in the freshwater. Um, in Ireland, they were a lot nicer. They, you know, there's mermaids of the Isle of Man and they would offer like presents or assistance to boats. So it just depended. Can we talk about Russian mermaids for a second? Because they're my favorite ones. <laughs> yes. Um, they're the Rusalkas. Um, they resembled mermaids of other cultures, but they would like they were sometimes a little more ethereal and they would come out of the water at springtime. They can live in fresh water too, right? Yeah, they would provide like springtime water to the farmer's crops. But that one shifted. Like they used to be benevolent and then over the years, the legends changed to be more evil um, or like tragic. No, maybe not evil, but tragic. Like in 19th century Slavic countries, some people believed that women who committed suicide by water or were drowned uh, were forced to live as Rusalki until their deaths were avenged. Interesting. So rather than like distinct mythical creatures, these Slavic versions of mermaids were depicted as undead spirits of humans. Apparently, they would seduce men with their voice or their looks, which is familiar to other mermaid-like creatures, but they would entangle the men's feet in their hair as they got close to the water and then pull them under. The men would either drown because her body was too slippery and he couldn't get up to the surface, or get this, she would tickle him to death. <laughs> I didn't make that up. The Rusalkas tickle men to death. I'm trying to find the name of the book that I read this past spring because Which, it's got, oh, The Bear and the Nightingale. 
Was there a Rusalka in it? There's a Rusalka in it. Really? In fact, there's a lot of Russian folklore in this book. Nice. Um, Did but, she tickle anyone to death? But no, there's a there's a girl who has kind of like witch blood, and so she kind of befriends all of these mythical creatures that nobody else can see. Mm. And so people don't believe her when she's like, well, the woman in the pond, and they all think she's like crazy. Yeah. But it's because she can see all these mythical creatures and nobody else can because society is kind of at a point where they're like moving past believing in really believing in these mythical creatures gotcha. anyways she does save her brother from being drowned by a rusalka she tells her to knock it off <laughs> so he could have been tickled to yes death. he could have been tickled to death but yes the bear and the nightingale by Catherine arden in in these countries there was a rusalka week in early june and people were not allowed to swim during that week because the rusalki were most dangerous at that time of the year so <laughs> how do you know i don't know it probably comes from, because I mean, a lot of these folklore fairy tales come from like real life things. So like uh, in the spring, the water from the snow runoff would be, be the higher. highest, yeah. would be the most dangerous. So there'd be more drowning. So there'd be more time. drowning. Yeah. So it would probably like relate to the result. That was my guess. Yeah. A lot of these yeah. are come from sort of trying to explain mm -hmm. tragic things, sadly, um, or scary things. So in China, um, there's a legend of a man that saved a woman from the sea and then he married her. But then when he dies, she just returns back to the sea. Okay. Um, and then Korea, their mermaids had underwater cities or kingdoms. Ooh. Yeah. Um, like King Triton? Exactly. Those ones in Korea, they could predict the weather as well. And they would warn sailors and fishermen through song of an impending storm. Um, there's mermaids in Japan, Southeastern Asian countries. There's mermaids in Africa and like the African diaspora countries in the Caribbean. With those, like mermaids lure men to their deaths. And specifically in Zimbabwe the mermaids rule individual bodies of water. And if someone gets lost or falls in the water, they have to, the people have to give a gift to the, that mermaid of that specific body of water to return their lost loved one. I just find it interesting that um, like, there's always this like dichotomy of good and bad and benevolent and, and, you know, and malevolent or beautiful and dangerous and with mermaids. And it like, I mean, it fits cause they're half fish, half, half woman um but then there's also always this intermingling in all these legends from all the cultures of mermaids with with humans like all these stories of like love and or danger like just that their stories are always intertwined i think that that's really interesting yeah i love that it's the same as the dragons like the whole benevolent malevolent just depends upon which culture yeah but i also wonder why why so many of them are about falling in love and marriage is it just because because they're know. women, because they're beautiful. That's what I wondered. Yeah, if, if it's that men saw, I mean, they still tend to now, but like especially then, saw women as other and an alien in some way or less than human. Maybe I don't know. I couldn't really find a connection why so many cultures have that one concept of marriage and love between mermaids and humans. But yeah, I think what fascinates me most about them is like that mercurial nature, like. One moment they seem to be good luck or benevolent, and then other moments they're like dangerous or portentous. I like what the uh, the Royal Museum of Greenwich had to say. It said, the mermaid's conflicting personalities as both a beautiful and seductive maiden and a monstrous sea creature that dragged sailors to their deaths is a fitting representation for the wild, violent, yet fascinating nature of the sea itself. You know, it makes sense. The sea yeah. is beautiful, but it's also dangerous. dangerous. All right, let's jump to pop culture. The big one here is The Little Mermaid, which I want to talk about Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid for a second. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know it, if I know the yeah, so it came from, version of the story. It came from Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid, which at the beginning of the story and the concept, it's very similar to Disney's version. 
but it goes in some darker directions as those Always. old stories tend to do. Yeah, just like the Brothers Grimm. She she wants to see the human world. She saves the prince. She gives her voice to the sea witch in exchange for human legs. Like that's all the same. But not in Disney's film is like this theme of, or at least not as much, is the theme of the soul. Um, early on in the literary story, the mermaid learns that because humans have souls when they die, they get to go to heaven and they get, you know, enlightenment. Whereas if a mermaid dies, it just becomes part of the sea, part of the foam. Like it's very um, like tragic, that setup there. Interesting. And So she's got extra motive to become a human. Yeah, exactly. In, in Hans Christian Andersen's story, the mermaid does fall in love with the prince, but he doesn't reciprocate. He marries another princess and the mermaid's like heartbroken. Um, and then she's like, well, I want to get my voice and my fishtail back now because what's the point of being here she's instructed that to break the curse she has to kill the prince with a knife and spill the blood on her human legs and then the curse will be be broken (laughs) otherwise she'll die she can't bring herself to do it because she still loves the prince and she doesn't want to kill him Mm. so she just ends up dying and becomes one with the foam but she learns that she does have a soul because the story kind of ends with her like lifting and you know her soul going up so it turns out mermaids do have souls that everything she'd been taught was wrong so it doesn't end all bad but there's a lot of more a lot more tragedy in the original story um some others you know chronicles of narnia there's mermaids mentioned um you have harry potter which we see a little bit of them you know and they they have their own language mermish which is talked about apparently there's mermaids in middle earth in one of the history of middle earth books they mention mermaids Interesting. i think they're a small part but in moby dick there's like the crewmen believe they hear mermaids singing in the night. Captain Ahab claims they're just seals, but then the next day a sailor dies. So they feel vindicated that it was mermaids. Oh, definitely. Yeah. He didn't just fall overboard. It right. was the mermaids. You have Peter Pan, which is a very um, you know representative depiction of like these beautiful mermaids, but then they're really dangerous because they try to drown Wendy. Especially um, in the the live action Peter Pan, the newer. Yeah. I mean, newer. Came out, when like I was, came out when I was like 14. Um, George Melies, the silent film director, he had a film called The Mermaid, which was the first use of a mermaid in film, 1904, but it wasn't swimming. Really? The first, this is like my most exciting trivia here. So from 1911 to 1924, silent film star and professional Australian swimmer Annette Kellerman, she played a mermaid in five films, five of those silent films. She was the first mermaid swimming on screen. Side note, she was also the first, one of the first women to wear a one-piece bathing, bathing suit instead of pantaloons. And she later started her own line of swimming suits for women. <laughs> as well as she's the one that popularized synchronized swimming. It's fantastic. Um, so Annette, when she was six, she had a weakness in her legs that required her to wear like metal leg braces. Um, and to strengthen her legs, her parents put her in swimming classes and it worked. So her legs Smart. got strong. And she was a like successful very successful professional swimmer and later when she started working in film she does she's the one that designed the mermaid tail swimsuit that she wore in the movies so okay. she designed and made that swimsuit and esther williams yes. plays her in million dollar mermaid that's who oh, she's playing in fantastic. that movie yeah <laughs> remember we talked about esther williams i don't know what episode we were talking about her in but um she did this made these amazing like synchronized swimming synchronized movies. swimming balletic like water 40s stunts and 50s, yeah, yeah. Really cool. So that's what I have to say on mermaids. All right, Valerie. Okay. Tell us about unicorns. Yeah, and how similar their story can, or like their, how do you call it, their the creation of their story could be to the mermaids. So the earliest mention of unicorn 
is in the 5th century by a Greek writer, uh, Tesasis. I tried to look up how to pronounce his name, and I could not find it. But that's as close as we're going to get. Anyways, he was a personal physician to the king of Persia. And after listening to stories from, like, traders coming from India, he decided to write a book called Indica, which... So he's never been to India, but he's going to write all about India based off of hearsay of traders, which is much like your gentleman who's writing the bestiary. Um, But that book has the first mention of a unicorn. It's described as a wild ass with a single horn that's a cubit, or 28 inches long, with a white body, purple head, and blue eyes. So it also mentions in this story that those who drank from its horn were thought to be protected from stomach trouble, epilepsy, and poison. It was very fast and hard to capture. So what's great is that unicorns don't come from, like, Greek mythology. They come from Greek, like, natural history because they were real, obviously. Because he wrote about them from things that he heard about traders from India <laughs> when he'd never been, from, never been to India. There's also, speaking of, like, other cultures, so in the Bible, in the Hebrew translation of the Bible, the Rayem is an animal mentioned nine times. That word can be translated to either um, a unicorn or a wild ox. So if you take one translation of it, then you've got unicorns in the Bible. Um, And from there, we make our way to medieval theology again, where the unicorn was found in tons of like religious stories and could only be tamed by a virgin because there was uh, one, like a precursor to a bestiary that was written by a Christian guy and he... Um, tells a story about a fair virgin maiden who sits in the woods and a unicorn is so taken with her that he just comes and lays his head down on her lap. So that's where the idea of uh, unicorns and uh, only being tamed by virgins comes from. And so sometimes it's an allegory uh, for the Virgin Mary, and sometimes the unicorn and its death were allegories for Christ's Christ's death. So these stories... uh, led to lots of different descriptions of um, unicorns in Christian art, which is really fun to, like, look back at all the old, like, medieval paintings and all the different ways that a unicorn was drawn. Sometimes it looked like a wild ass, a goat, or a horse, but it always had a single horn out of their forehead. Because unicorns are drawn to virgins, just like in Harry Potter, Casey, do you remember? Where no. um, Professor Grubby Plank is like, you boys stay back. They like girls more. Mm. So there's like this. <laughs> so the girls are all petting the unicorns and the boys are like standing back by the fence because they're all, you know, they're like the young maidens. But because of that idea uh, that they're attracted to young maidens, young virgins, they became a symbol of beguiled lovers or chaste love and faithful marriages. And their white coats are symbols of purity. So the unicorn tameable only by a virgin woman that like that myth had been really well described and you know like everybody knew that by the time that marco polo comes around so in the late 13th century marco polo describes having seen a unicorn he describes it as scarcely smaller than elephants they have the hair of a buffalo and feet like an elephant's they have a single large black horn in the middle of the forehead they have a head like a wild boar's They spend their time by preference wallowing in mud and slime. They are very ugly brutes to look at. They are not at all all such as we describe them when we relate that they let themselves be captured by virgins. 
but clean contrary to our notions. So it's clear that Marco Polo is describing a rhinoceros. Rhinoceroses. <laughs> Which is funny because some people think that the original book written by Tessasis, <laughs> that he might have been thinking about like or heard stories of the Indian rhinoceros as like a potential um, source for the unicorn. Uh, in the Chinese culture, we have the Kilin, which is a often called the Chinese unicorn, but much like your um, Chinese phoenix, it's an amalgamation of a lot of different hmm. um, animals. So it was described as an extraordinarily beautiful creature, sparkling like gems and adorned with in flames. With their scaly bodies horned head and horned heads, they resemble the Chinese dragons, but their legs um, come to delicate hooves rather than dragons' vicious paws, and their tails are lion-like instead of serpentine. What's fun about the Killin is that no two look exactly the same, like they each have their own unique embellishment. So some have like whiskers, some have big feathers, um, some have like giant antlers or scales, and some have unicorn-like horns. But whatever their special attraction was, they always moved gracefully and dazzle the mortals who see them. So that's fun. Some other bits of unicorn trivia here, Casey. Unicorn myth. The throne chair of Denmark, which still exists, like you can go see it in the, I don't know where it's stationed, <laughs> a museum in a castle, I don't know. <laughs> but it was made in the 1660s and is said to have been made out of unicorn horns. That was the story behind That's it. That's awesome. But it was actually made out of Norwegian narwhal tusks. That's also awesome. I mean, except for the poor narwhals, but yes. Well, true. Do nar- I don't think narwhals shed their tusks. Mm, I wasn't thinking. I, in my head, I just thought they shed them, but... I don't know. Knowing history, that's not likely. <laughs> so you're right, those poor still. narwhals. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, traditional methods of hunting unicorns involved entrapment by a virgin because... You know, they're attracted to them. So, like, hunters, when they want to attract a unicorn to kill it to get the horn, then they would just, like, set a, a, a fair maiden in the middle of a field. But in one of his notebooks, Leonardo da Vinci wrote, The unicorn, through its intemperance and not knowing how to control itself for the love it bears to fair maidens, forgets its ferocity and wildness, and laying aside all fear, it will go up to a seated damsel and go to sleep in her lap, and thus the hunters take it. I mean, I feel like it should be in the damsel code that you don't use yourself as a lure for unicorns. Like, mm. feels a little iffy. But also... Women of that time didn't have very many uh, say, very much say in anything. So. Right. <laughs> They're probably like, you're going to go sit in this field to help us catch a unicorn. You probably sat there for 10 hours and it never showed up. <laughs> like the great pumpkin. Yes. Some of the attributes of unicorns, their horns have healing properties, naturally. Um, so like they've been known to purify poison water for other animals. You know, like just stick your horn into the pond and all of a sudden it's ready to drink. Better than a Britannica. Hmm? Better than a... What's the... Britta? Britta, that's what Britannica's a, wa- <laughs> Brit- uh, a world encyclopedia. encyclopedia. <laughs> but yeah. Yes, a Britta. I was thinking like a Britta filter. <laughs> that makes... There's the legend that if you throw your Britannica in the lake, <laughs> it purifies it, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, cups that were supposedly made out of unicorn horn, but were probably made more likely like from rhinoceros or narwhal tusks were super important like uh, if you were really 
if you're of the nobility and you could get a hold of one of those, like that was a sign of your your wealth and superiority. Uh, especially since the unicorn horn is supposed to protect against poisons, so anything you drink out of your unicorn cup, you can't die, Casey. In fact, in a book called The Unicorn, written in 1980, the author Nancy Hathaway tells the story of how England's King James... He buys a unicorn cup, and he's determined to see whether, you know, if it's actually real unicorn, then one of his favorite servants that he calls over, and they put poison in there, but also they sprinkled some... Oh, he his, his wasn't a cup. He had a unicorn horn, which he paid, like, a ton of money for, and so they sprinkled some of the unicorn powder from the horn into the cup that had the poison, and then he gives it to his servant to test out, and the poor servant dies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sad. Uh, she says as we both laugh I know hopefully the worst well I mean like the thing is like I don't know if that one's myth or real we're gonna hope that Mm. story is a myth (laughs) I mean I'm sure a king would definitely do that Um, but I wonder if he like hunted down the people who sold him the unicorn horn you're playing for high stakes if you're trying to con the king in the 1600s in London newspapers there were like advertisements for you know miracle elixirs made from true unicorn horns so, which were said to, you know, relieve anything from uh, ulcers and scurvy to melancholy consumption, fainting spells, and pretty much anything else you could think of could be cured with either a unicorn elixir or unicorn pills. I believe the, it. The powder was crushed up in it. So, pop culture. Do you have a favorite pop culture unicorn? Uh, I was thinking of, um, do you ever watch The Last Unicorn, the animated movie? No, I haven't. We weren't allowed to watch it very much because it, like, had swears in it. Which, you know, is not okay if it's an animated movie with swears in it. So, <laughs> um, so I don't really remember a ton about it. There's a 1985 movie called Legend. Have you ever seen that? Nope. Speaking of an 80s fantasy, it's got Tom Cruise, who's kind of chesty in it and very young. <laughs> and Tim Curry is like the devil. He's terrifying. And he's trying to get, kill all the unicorns and steal their horns. Mm. Yeah. Because of the, you know, special powers from unicorn yeah. horns. Legends like Willow, but not good. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they're on about the same level, but no, okay. No, no. <laughs> I want to watch me, Legend. I haven't seen it for a long time. If you're telling me they're worse than, you, than Willow, you're not selling me on watching them. In 1871 is when Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass came out. And apparently there's a unicorn, like a little story inside that with the lion and the unicorn. And there's a quote there. From the unicorn that says, and he's talking to the little girl, and he says, Well, now that we have seen each other, said the unicorn, if you believe in me, I'll believe in you. Which you can definitely see as like a precursor for other books for little girls about, you know, believing in unicorns. And (laughs) Um, apparently in a Flash Gordon episode, there are some unicorns being ridden by Princess Aura. I don't know anything about Flash Gordon, but unicorns. In the book... The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, which is one of the Chronicles of Narnia stories, there's a unicorn named Jewel, who is King Tyrion's best friend. Unicorns in a Battlestar Galactica episode. They find a whole planet of, like, unicorns. In the old Battlestar Galactica or the new? 1978. Okay. So old. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, Unicorns show up in 1983 in Dungeons & Dragons. And then in 1983 is when you first have My Little Pony. I didn't realize. I mean, I knew it was like an old show, but I didn't know it was originally 83. Which features three unicorns known as Moon Dancer, Majesty, and Glory. 
If those aren't just unicorn names. Are they like the parents in the new one? I don't know how they connect to like, because I mean, obviously, I don't know when the, so My Little Pony, our, da- our five-year-old daughter loves it. If you're not a patron, uh, you need to become a swashbuckler and then you get our bonus beep episodes twice a month. And the last one we had our five-year-old daughter on and we talked all about unicorns and And alicorns and pegasus and a lot of My Little Pony. But yeah, so the newest My Little Pony, I mean, I think it's got like five seasons. uh, So it's been around for a while now. Like the rebooted My Little Pony. I said that funny. Rebooted. Rebooted. (laughs) Rebutted. Yes. Also in the 1980s, 1984, you have She-Ra, Princess of Power. But She-Ra's horse, which is she names Horsey, very original. <laughs> it's like our, what our, like our kids name their stuffed animals. Exactly. But when she transforms into She-Ra, um, then her horse turns into... It's actually an alicorn, not just a unicorn. So that's a bit of a stretch. But its name is Swiftwind. So that's better than yeah that's a lot better yeah and we've got harry potter where we've got the um, dead one the that's one pretty much it the yeah. dead one the dead one and then you see like we mentioned earlier then you've got the unicorns later that professor grubby plank brings i forget about that but yeah those are the happier unicorns the non-dead ones naturally uh in the chronicles of narnia the lion the witch in the wardrobe movie they show king peter riding mm. a unicorn instead of a normal horse they that's show, not in the book but it's in the movie they also show a phoenix in the air because it like creates a wall of fire in the movie the phoenix oh, yeah. does he's the one who makes the fire i'd forgotten yeah like i remember the wall of fire i fell into in a burning wall of toy fire. story 3 casey we've got buttercup oh yeah her little played by the, um the dad from goldberg's yeah Man, that's going to bug me. I know his name. Uh, All right, move on. Anyway, so yeah, and then we've got, like we mentioned, the new My Little Ponies. Uh, My favorite unicorn, Casey. I'm ready. Is from Phoebe and Her Unicorn, Mm. which is a graphic novel series that our kids love, and it's really funny, and I like them too. The 12th one just came out. The kids were so excited. It was was at the library yesterday, so we got the 12th one. But anyways, that unicorn's name is Marigold, and she like not only has all kinds of magical powers, but her downfall, like all unicorns, is her vanity. Um, so like if she catches sight of herself in a in a mirror or a pond or anything, she'll just be stuck staring at herself until like the reflection is broken. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Yeah. So that's actually how uh, Marigold and Phoebe meet is Phoebe throws, she sees the unicorn just staring at herself in the pond and she like throws a rock into the pond to like make the ripples because she's trying to get the unicorn's attention. And then Marigold's like, you've saved me. And so she feels kind of like she's beholden to her at first, but then they become like best friends. Or actually, I think Phoebe, the unicorn's like, you can have one wish. And Phoebe says, I want you to be my best friend. So then she just has this unicorn that goes (laughs) everywhere with her. Oh, I thought of my favorite unicorn. Yes. Virgil from Unicorn Store. He's my favorite unicorn. I was going to mention Unicorn Store because it's all about unicorns, but like it's not really a unicorn character. You do eventually see it, but you're right. like, you're still kind of like, is this it real? It doesn't is have it a not? name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Virgil, he's a unicorn. Yes. Uh, you could kind of consider like Unikitty from Lego Movie. Mm. Part unicorn, at least. Part unicorn, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, Rapidash, the unicorn Pokemon. Sure. It eventually, I, I had, I mean, this is just in my studies. I don't know that much about Pokemon. Your studies, I love yes, that. but. What about my studies? <laughs> so it, it evolves apparently from Ponyta at level 40. Then it becomes Rapidash the Unicorn. 
has like a flaming mane and tail. Tyler would know. Yes. And other people, I'm sure. Here's my favorite thing about pop culture unicorns is that unicorns have always been popular throughout time, but they seem to kind of like come and go out of style. Like there were like a lot of things that brought up unicorns in like the 80s. Yeah. And now they have had a, starting in like, I don't know, probably like 2012 or so, uh, there was a big resurgence of lots of unicorn stuff. I mean, our five-year-old daughter is like still like obsessed, and she's got like unicorn shirts and sweaters, and those are like her favorite things to wear. But for a while there, um, I was reading in a Refinery29 article that came out in 2017, and it was talking about how they were at like the peak of the unicorn, you know, craze, and it was talking about all the other things that are, were unicorn related, like for food. There was a Starbucks unicorn frappuccinos, which were like the most colorful, sugary whipped cream topped with sprinkles on them. Which is funny because the logo for Starbucks is a mermaid. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, but apparently there was like unicorn toast where they do like colorful cream cheese. So basically any food that had like pastel colors and you could put sprinkles or spark- uh, sparkles on it of some kind, it would be unicorn. So like hot chocolate and cakes and, um, you know, so there was a whole craze of unicorn food. And then you had uh, rainbow fashion. So like in makeup, there would be like unicorn names on things. Uh, for example, a lipstick called Unicorn Tears that was like blue, but I guess when you put it on, it became kind of like a neutral color on your lips. And... It was like always sold out. I don't know if it, this was what three years ago. I don't know if they still make unicorn tears lipstick, but apparently it was incredibly hard to find. <laughs> and then there's like unicorn body glitter and Lisa Frank unicorn makeup brushes for applying your makeup. But here's the quote from the Refinery29 article. It says, we have officially hit the very peak of the unicorn trend, the tippy top of a vibrant, magical rainbow where Katy Perry songs are on repeat and the clouds are made of dreams and cotton candy. On Instagram, feeds are flooded with users showing off everything from their unicorn body glitter uh, to their unicorn bagels, pool floats, macarons, uh, sequined jeans, grilled cheeses, high top sneakers, iPhone cases, nail decals, and sushi rolls. Uh, Facebook is overflowing with endless unicorn makeup tutorials. Even the highbrow fashion world is not immune. Collection Drake's J. Crew Midnight Unicorn Pajama Set, a dramatic silky number that costs $396, completely sold out. And last year, Valentino's series of unicorn-inspired the items from a little black dress to a bomber jacket were seen on the likes of Amelia Clark and Jennifer Lopez. So, unicorns. Like, mad, wild in pop culture. I feel like we're kind of on the downhill side of it now, but they're still very much a thing. And that's all I have about unicorns, Casey. All right, let's close out the episode. Do you have any media recommendations? Yeah, I'm going to recommend, because, well, we talked, we mentioned Josh. He gave a, he gave us our all-important question at the beginning here. He's our newest patron. Hi, Josh. Uh, Josh has a podcast with his wife, Sydney. Thanks for participating. You should go check it out. That's what I'm going to recommend. Fun. Also, that I'm going to recommend that one. And then one other podcast, um, not on the network that I listen to, is Watchable Media. Their hosts are really nice and awesome. And you should check those both out. Thanks for participating and Watchable Media. I'm going to recommend the Best of Leonard Cohen album on Spotify. It's funny nice. because I he has a song on the Hunt for the Wilder People album, like soundtrack. And so I found him through that. But I mean, he's like the song that's on the album, uh, The Partisan, is from like the 1960s. And so the best of Leonard Cohen album is all like 1960s music. And it's very mellow and folksy and I've listened to it a ton in the past nice. few weeks. 
Well, thanks for joining us and let us know what you think about dragons and unicorns and mermaids and phoenixes. Or what your favorite oh is, because maybe we missed it and that's okay. And I'm sure we hope we you're not it. mad at us, but let us know because we love to talk about it. You can talk to us about it on Instagram or Twitter at elsewhere underscore pod. Um, we love talking about it in our Discord, which is the best place on the internet literally the best place on the internet we're on there all the time all the time so to get access to the discord just head to patreon.com slash hello from elsewhere it's the lowest tier and you get access to the discord or check out like the swashbuckler tier where you get bonus beeps which means hello from elsewhere every week and you still get access to the discord so check that out our cover art is by vaishan brandon you can find his graphics on instagram at graphite.vmb hello from elsewhere is a proud member of wbne visit wbne.org for more amazing podcasts like tyler and emily's amazing relationship and parenting podcast bagels hello and welcome to bagels I'm Emily Carlin. And I'm Tyler Carlin. And welcome to our crazy, chaotic, and loving life. It is so much fun, and bagels is an opportunity for us to just talk about love, relationships, and sometimes we get a little deep, and sometimes... We get really silly. We get really silly. So if uh, this sounds like the kind of thing you'd be into, check bagels out wherever you get your podcasts, and on Spotify, or WBNE.org. I love you. I love you. Bye. Bye. Well, Casey, this mythical menagerie is scary. Not so benevolent anymore. It's scary. Yeah. yeah it's scary. <laughs> you got pretty Creatures intense. are scary. scary. I can talk about them. I don't want to be here anymore, though. <laughs> Time to skedaddle. Yep. Happy beeps. Happy beeps. <laughs>